Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused education, healthcare, and workforce leaders explore new education-to-work approaches and innovations. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. And today, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Walter Greenleaf, a pioneer in the development of clinical virtual reality technology for surgical simulation rehabilitation and treatment of PTSD and other mental health issues. I'm going to ask him to provide an overview of his illustrious career because there's too many titles and accomplishments to list. But currently he is a visiting scholar at Stanford University's MediaX program and its virtual human interaction lab and senior executive at several medical device and digital health product companies, as well as editor of a leading journal in the field. I'm really looking forward to asking him about advances in digital medicine and the impact on patient care and the workforce. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Walter. Well, thank you, Vaughn. Um, it's very good to be here with you, too. So, Walter, with over three decades of research and development experience, you are considered a leading authority in the field of digital medicine and medical virtual reality technology. Tell us what drew you into medicine in the first place and why you saw virtual reality technologies as an opportunity so early on. Well, I, I became interested in clinical medicine as an outreach of my work as a research scientist uh, in the physiology department at Stanford University. I, I was studying uh, how hormones affected mood in people and uh, was part of a psychophysiology research lab. And I became very interested in how we can use computer technology to score the signals that we were collecting in uh, our research lab. We didn't have digital um, scoring of the data back in those days. And I found that to be very frustrating. So from there, I moved on to develop some algorithms and some interface technology to hook uh, our instruments into a computer. Back in the day, it was an Apple II computer. And then I realized, and uh, other people came uh, knocking on my door saying, what you're doing in terms of scoring this data with a computer is very appropriate and needed in the clinical arena. So uh, that's what sort of dragged me. I moved from basic bench research on human psychophysiology into clinical care uh, through the pathway of uh, analytics of my information. So and it's been a really fun ride since then, uh, since the mid-80s. Uh, using computers as part of clinical uh, research and clinical care has, has really grown. And now, especially in today's world with, you know, the internet and being all of us being so interconnected and also the compelling need to reach people through telemedicine, it's become all the more important to be able to have uh, ways to capture information, score information and process information as, as part of the healthcare process. Well, Walter, you've talked about a range of technologies and you've seen so much evolve in your 30 plus years in this field. Before we get into the details on the implication of the technology and what it can do now, can you touch on, on a few career highlights so that our listeners can get a sense of the breadth of your experience? Well, um, I guess I've been fortunate in that I've been able to stay both inside the academic arena um, and also to be a participant in not only the technology development arena, but also in the medical product arena. It's um, three different ecosystems, three different languages, and uh, 
three different um, opportunities to have both wonderful peak experience and sometimes some exhausting experiences. In the academic arena, I spent a, a year as director of the MIND division for the Stanford Center on Longevity. And that was exciting for me because I had an opportunity to learn about the looming issue of an aging population and how it's going to be straining our healthcare system, not just in the US, but really worldwide. Uh, I became acutely aware of the looming problem of neurodegenerative disease. As we get up into our 70s, 80s, and 90s, two out of every seven of us right now are destined to develop a problem like Alzheimer's. That academic experience sensitized me to the acute need to work hard to come up with interventions to support all the problems that happen as we age, uh, chronic pain, mobility restrictions, chronic diseases like uh, diabetes, stroke, so many problems accumulate as we get older. And the only way out is for us to come up with new technologies to support uh, living independently. So that academic experience resonated with some of my other experiences. I've, I've had the opportunity to start and, and bring through to a successful exit several medical product companies on the digital health arena. And I, I really like making contributions in that manner. I feel that when I was a scientist publishing papers on basic research, that was important. But in many ways, translating those findings uh, out into clinical care is really extremely important and, and personally extremely rewarding. So uh, to address your, your question, um, the, one of the other peak experiences I've had is the pleasure of developing medical products and bringing them out and seeing them in use. And uh, that always makes me very happy. And I guess currently that this current chapter of my life, what I'm enjoying doing is working with some of the academic groups and some of the early stage uh, startup groups. And there's quite a few of them out there doing just really amazing things. And I'm doing my best to connect them to the larger entities that are more established. Some of the public medical device companies, some of the pharmaceutical companies, some of the healthcare networks. Uh, I think that's really what helps grow the ecosystem is, is having the more established groups reach out and team with some of the academic groups and early stage companies. So I'm, I'm having great fun making those connections. And I guess the third arm to answer your question is um, I got involved in the field of virtual reality technology back in the late 80s. And it's, it's a field that back in those days was nascent. It was very expensive to use um, virtual reality technology. You needed to have a, a expensive computer, a $500,000 silicon graphics machine, and some very expensive head-mounted displays. Now we can do things a thousand times better for a head-mounted display, a VR system that costs a third of the cost of a smartphone. The good news is uh, the work of my colleagues uh, over the last uh, three decades exploring the clinical applications of virtual reality technology and also how it can be used for, for training. That's all been under development. So now that we finally have affordable, comfortable technology, we also have hand in hand with that the momentum that uh, all the hard work of people have, have been working with more expensive and more cumbersome systems, but people have been working on it for decades. And we now finally have the platform to reach people and leverage this very powerful technology. Well, I feel so fortunate that we got connected through the Stanford Distinguished Visiting Fellow Program with, with MediaX. I mean, it's a rare individual like yourself who can travel 
all these worlds, the world of academia, medical products, and then also the, the medical clinical technology applications. I wonder, uh, Walter, you're really in a good position to tell us what you think are the most promising advances in virtual medicine in terms of the potential for having positive impact on patient care. What are some of those areas that you would highlight? I think some of the most compelling and important examples are using uh, virtual environments to treat um, issues of mental health care. Uh, heretofore, we've relied upon our imaginations to treat some difficult problems like post-traumatic stress, like helping people who have a problem with substance of abuse or problems with managing their diet or managing their moods. We've said, imagine you're in this situation. Imagine something that is unpleasant or fearful for you. And that is hard to do. It's really hard to get your brain to think about something that's painful or uncomfortable or, or terrifying. However, with the use of virtual environments, we can gradually do exposure therapy and take people to a place where they may feel some anxiety, may feel some discomfort, and teach them um, how to manage and face those feelings of discomfort and anxiety. So we've had great progress of addressing post-traumatic stress, learned fear reactions, addressing um, fears and phobias. And we've also, in the same way, been able to use uh, virtual environments to teach people situational confidence and refusal skills involving things such as um, learning how to resist peer pressure in a bar when your friends are encouraging you to have another drink and you've made a decision that you don't want to drink, or managing uh, cravings for a substance of abuse, or also managing um, anger. If, if someone has an anger management issue, we can put them in a virtual environment in a way to evoke that type of response and teach them how to manage their behavior. It's also very powerful in that we can do better assessments. Uh, again, heretofore, we've had to rely on self-report. I, I might say to you, how did that medication affect your mood? Or how are you feeling today? Or how did you feel last week? And it's very hard to, to report that. It's very hard to recall that. It's very hard to describe that. But if I use virtual environments, I can challenge you, I can evoke a emotional response, and I can also measure your response, and not just by what you say, but also what you do, and also your psychophysiological, we can capture your heart rate, your eye gaze, your pupil dilation, your facial expressions, and we can use those as biomarkers of your cognitive and emotional state. So finally, we have some new tools to help improve mental health care, and also do research. If we're trying to come up with new medications, uh, we can use virtual environments as a way to do much more robust assessments of people for neuropsychological. But, you know, the list goes on, uh, helping with autism and Asperger's, teaching social skills, helping people uh, deal with pain, um, deal with depression. We've been able to use virtual environments as new tools to have better measurements and better feedback systems to improve that part of clinical care. You know, I'm glad you brought up the domain of mental health and, and well-being here at Futuro Health. We, with the board, we've been looking at whether the pandemic is going to create a rise in mental health issues and how we can supply workers uh, to be of help in this area. And so, in 2021, we'll be investing a lot in, in occupations at the sub-baccalaureate level uh, that could be of, of help um, in the behavioral health area. 
So I wonder, you know, you're giving these examples focused in behavioral health, like PTSD, anxiety order, disorders, addictions, and other difficult problems. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about maybe the workforce implications of these technologies and what it would take to bring these technologies you know, out into more pervasive use by patients. One of the workforce implications is that I think as people start returning to work uh, from working from home um, soon, hopefully there will be times where we're going back to the office. And virtual environments can help us uh, develop the, the, the confidence of how to return and how to return safely. I mean, there will be times where we're returning, but we're still fearful of exposure. And so people will be worried about uh, keeping social distances and, ha and also how to deal with someone who confronts them who may not be abiding by uh, the rules and doing things the way we'd like them to. So I think virtual environments can be used to help um, the term is stress inoculation. We can help people be prepared for stressful situations, have them rehearse going through a stressful situation. And in, in terms of workforce training, we can also train people how to handle a difficult situation with someone else. If somebody is being angry, if somebody's being defiant, if somebody's being uh, really sad and they need help and encouragement, or recognizing signs of stress in other people and, and learning how to do emotional first aid, how to support someone who's upset or angry or distressed or perhaps suicidal. So I think teaching people skills on how to manage their own emotions and how to manage other people who are having emotional challenges is really key. Same thing for everybody in the healthcare ecosystem is we need to be prepared both trained on how to handle an emergency and also how to manage uh, our moods when that happens uh, in order to be able to keep calm and do the right thing. Uh, the other thing that's very powerful about simulations as a way of learning is that we can slow down the speed, we can speed things up, we can watch things from another point of view, from a third-person point of view, for example, and that allows us to have more individualized learning and we can match the individual's learning style. So, Walter, in um, 2020, you know, Futura Health is putting through an underwriting tuition for 1,200 individuals from the community to get their training and to become medical assistants. And what we hear from the employers is it's not their technical skills. They agree with you that it is their soft skills, their ability to deal with distressed patients who are walking in or uh, patients who are in um, homeless situations and are coming in with all sorts of issues. So it's it's being able to expose the the graduates to these types of scenarios in advance that could better prepare them to be uh, productive on day one in patient care. I think it's so important. And we've been so fortunate that you've been advising us on potential technologies that we could take advantage of in order to create these simulations for students. Well, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. And I do think that people are very social animals. And it's one thing to learn mechanically how to do a process. But if we also don't know how to do it as a member of a team or to do it in collaboration with the patient, it's, gonna, it's not going to go very well. So learning how to interact and manage a process in a way that's sensitive to people's uh, 
situation and being again knowing what to say and how to handle it is is so important and it's the extra layer of knowledge that often people don't get and you know one of the things we can do in a simulation is we can exaggerate the nonverbal communications so often there's a cultural gap between uh, somebody who's grown up in one culture trying to understand uh, what's going on in, in somebody who's had a different cultural upbringing. And that cultural competency isn't just learning the language. It's learning the nonverbal communication that might signal different moods. So I'm so glad that Futuro is, and, and with your efforts, are looking at not just how to train people on a process or how to use a, a certain device or how to use a certain part of equipment, or but you're also... Part of that is teaching them the soft skills, how to recognize behavioral issues in other people and how to be the most effective person in that situation. You, you want to be engaging. You want to be charming. You want to be attentive. You want to be supportive. And those are all part of you know, skills that can be improved as people gain confidence. And, and, I, and I think that's the core thing that you're teaching people in order to do any job is to how to be confident. So Walter, you've been involved on the academic side, so you've seen students come out with MDs and PhDs as well as go down to the bachelor's and, and sub-baccalaureate level. Do you think these skills are sufficiently developed at any of these levels in current programs? No. Uh, I, it's sad to say, I think um, often we focus on the pedagogy of what's in the book or what are the sort of check marks that we can check off on a list of knowledge that is brought forward. And I, I think often what's missed is the, sort of the, the human factor, uh, the having empathy, having the ability to understand somebody else's state, and again, how to help them. You know, it used to be, there was the phrase, the bedside manner, but that was never really attended to. And, and that nonverbal, that non textbook part of the education was often uh, ignored. Now, I think we're getting better at that, but really at the whole stack of training in clinical care, we need to pay attention to that because that's what makes a good experience for the patient. Yes, we all want to have a great result. We want to get discharged from the hospital or we want to go home from the clinic. And But whether we know what to do is a matter of how much rapport we have with who's telling us, giving us discharge instructions. And whether we feel like we've had a good patient experience is, is really, I think, the foundation is how we interacted with other people. The medicine's so hard. You know, if as a patient, it's a scary process. Uh, it's a painful process sometimes. It's a confusing process all the time. And if the people that we're interacting with can help us feel confident and help us and if they're attentive to our needs, then it's so much better. So the more we're talking about this, Vaughn, the more I'm energized by the idea that this is such an important area of, of training that we, we must get right. All too often, people get sent home from a clinical experience with a stack of papers, and they're not clear on what they're supposed to do, and they're still scared. And so if we can help people feel more comfortable that they're being attended to and understand what's going on, and in order to understand, you have to have good rapport. So uh, I think there's all aspects of it that could be improved. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you bake into your, your curriculum uh, some of these the skill training and 
what can we do to make it even more robust? So we're, we're putting a lot of investments into uh, a curriculum called Human Touch Healthcare that we pair with whatever technical um, program that our students are taking because we need to decode for the students what are these skills and also engage them in practicing these skills and getting coaching and feedback. So we're augmenting their normal education journey with additional coursework and scenarios, simulations essentially. Yeah, well, I think you're doing the most important thing, which is teaching people to have situational confidence. If you're feeling prepared, if you're feeling self-confident, that gives you the foundation to do the rest. That is a great point. So you have more insights than others into the future of care. What career advice, Walter, would you have for someone who is just starting out uh, or wanting to pursue a career in medicine or healthcare? Well, to me, getting back to the earlier part of our conversation, I think in 10 to 15 to 20 years, our healthcare system is going to be strained by the need to address the challenges of, of an aging population and the elderly. I would say to anyone who is entering into the, the workforce now and has an interest in, in anything involving clinical care, master technology, make sure technology, you feel comfortable with technology because it's going to be part of your career path is learning how to master it and be very proficient and, and love it. And then also, I think, um, looking at how one could be prepared to address and, and feel comfortable working with seniors. There's often a big cultural gap, uh, not just between different ethnic groups and different linguistic groups and different uh, cultural backgrounds, but between the young and the old. And often it's harder to relate to someone who is a senior. And often there's a little bit of tension and anxiety to just deal with a, an elder person. I think the more you can be comfortable um, working with people who are seniors, that's going to open up more and more career paths. I'm going to sneak in one last question here. So the pandemic has created a great concern for all individuals who have their parents in nursing homes. Naturally, then you would want to move your parents into your home. That would also argue that care moves into the home. Do you see that? as a part of the future of care, a more prevalent part of the future of care? Oh, absolutely, for two reasons. Number one, as we get older, no one wants to be in a skilled nursing facility or in a senior care facility, assisted living facility. They're no fun. So people are going to do what we call aging in place. And there's already you know, a, a large movement in that direction to support people, even when they're not uh, as healthy as, as they could be to allow them to stay at home longer. And again, technology is going to allow us to help do that in a better way, but we're gonna need caregivers and, and people who can bring medicine to the individual as opposed to, to having the individual live in an assisted living facility. I think also that um, it's not just aging in place that is gonna be a, a shift in, in all this. I think it's also going to be the need to um, provide support for families too. Uh, people don't age in isolation and uh, family members get burnt out, get stressed too. That's an excellent point. I mean, when we have children, there's a lot of books and a lot of processes and a lot of rituals for transitioning into parenthood, but you don't have the, the same processes and rituals and, and support structures to transition into caring for parents, uh, for example. So thank you very much, Walter, for being with us today. 
It's such a delight. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Oh, I've enjoyed our conversation. Oh, very much so here. I'm Bontone Quinlivan with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Thank you.